Welcome to Engineering Career Journeys, brought to you by Australia-wide Engineering Recruitment. This is a podcast series where we interview prominent senior engineers from across Australia and delve deeper into their career journeys and how they got where they are today. We hope that this will inspire and assist up-and-coming engineers in planning their own careers. Now over to your host, David Armstrong, General Manager of Australia-wide Engineering Recruitment. Hello and welcome to today's conversation with Ray Keith. Starting out from his interest in music, Ray studied electrical and electronics engineering and initially designed and commissioned customized professional recording equipment. That led to instrumentation design, embedded software development, project management, international product development, international patents, and now owning and running his own electronics design and embedded software development business, Successful Endeavors. Since 2009, Successful Endeavors has received more than 40 awards, including national technical awards for their electronics designs and multiple other business accolades. Ray's hope and passion is to change the Australian economy by creating new local manufacturing opportunities in the high technology electronics space. He is determined to create tomorrow's opportunities today and building sustainable and competitive manufacturing industries for the future. Thanks very much to you, Ray, for agreeing to join us in our Engineering Career Journey podcast series. Ray, what compelled you to become an engineer? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I started off with an interest in science, and I did one year of a science degree, and I realized at the end of that year I had no idea why I was doing a science degree or where it was going to take me, what I was going to do with it. When I was at high school, careers days were always, are you going to be an accountant, a lawyer, a doctor, maybe something in commerce? And I would say, I'm interested in science. They said, did we mention accountant, doctor, lawyer, something in commerce? (laughs) And so, you know, I didn't even know that there was this thing called engineering as a career option when I was at high school. So having done a year of science, I then took a year off and I tried a few different things. So I worked a couple of mundane jobs. It's nothing like doing that to make you appreciate the value of an education and what it can do for you career-wise. I joined a pub band and I learned to play guitar in that order. It is not the recommended sequence. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds an interesting one. Yeah, it is. Now, the thing about it, you know, a starting out pub band is you don't have a lot of money and our gear was rubbish. And I thought to myself, surely someone can design better equipment than this. And so that was the spark. That was when I, and I went back to the uni that I've been studying at, which was Deakin in Geelong at their Warren Ponds campus. And I asked them, if I want to learn how to design electronics equipment, what do I study? And they go, oh, you want to do electrical engineering? I go, is that a thing? They go, oh, yeah. And so I signed up again to do electrical engineering. And unlike my science degree, because I was now doing something on purpose, because I was doing it for a reason, I really was able to sink myself into my studies. I was really keen to learn. I was designing things while I was at uni and selling them to people. I didn't realize that was a bit out there at the time, but I was just really keen to learn how this stuff worked and what to do with it. And so that began my journey on engineering. And when I graduated from uni, the uni actually wanted me to do a PhD, but I couldn't really see the value in that. So when I graduated, I didn't get a regular job. I actually started designing custom equipment for recording studios and professional musicians 
and quickly realized that I was probably not charging enough for any of this stuff because the bank account wasn't really <laughs> moving very fast. But I did manage to save up enough money to then do six months overseas in Pakistan as an overseas aid volunteer. So that was the second eye-opener of my career, which is that in Australia, we're part of the world's rich. And there's a lot of other people out there who don't have the opportunities that we have here. And that really gave me a different view of wealth and money and career and contribution and making a difference. So I came out of that period of my life with a set of engineering skills and also with a set of values that were probably not normal. Fascinating. What an interesting uh, practical way to start. Yeah, I didn't realise it was unusual. (laughs) (laughs) What was the biggest turning point, Ray, which accelerated your career? Uh, The return back from Pakistan made me start thinking about, oh, well, I need to get a job now. And so I sat and applied for the Victorian and Commonwealth Public Service exams. I sat, I did some interviews with some businesses, actually got a job with an engineering company that did railway signalling engineering called John Connell Mott Hay and Anderson. They sound like a bunch of lawyers, but so infrastructure engineering. Didn't really enjoy the work, but I did learn something really, really important there, which is called fail-safe design designing things so if anything goes wrong, the system ends up in a state that's not going to kill anyone. If the signalling system on a railway fail, they want the lights to go red, not green, that kind of stuff. And that was a really important lesson to learn. Turned out that I did quite well on the public service exams, and so one of the things they offered me was a slot as a broadcast engineer at ABC Television. So I then did 18 months of broadcast engineering. I loved it. But I quickly discovered that if I got promoted, I would be a desk jockey for the rest of my life doing paperwork, which isn't in my DNA to do it all. So I learned a lot about video and professional audio, designing post-production suites and all that sort of stuff. But I realized that wasn't going to be a career for me. So then I went looking for something else. And one of the places I interviewed was called Varian Tektron. They're now part of the Agilent group based here in Melbourne, and they design spectrophotometers. So things that you shine light through, and depending on how much light is absorbed, they can then tell what the chemical composition of things is. So we'd do that with liquids, we'd do that with solids, where we actually atomize the solids, and then they were designing a mass spectrometer at the time. So that was a chance for me to take all of those high-quality signal processing skills I had, not that pub guitarists really need them, in that situation but you know when you're designing a recording studio you've got a multi-channel mixing desk you might have you know 32 48 channels every one of those contributes noise so if you can get the noise down you have to get the noise down a lot lower than you do in a single channel instrument otherwise it just swamps the recordings turns out that getting the noise down in scientific instruments is a really important thing as well so i already had a bunch of instincts if you like that stuff that you get from doing stuff, something for long enough that you now know how it works. Mastery, if you like, uh, to use one of the terms for it. And that job really helped me to get what I'd call my professional engineering mindset in place because it was all about design it and then get it reviewed and other people checking your work. And I was a hardware engineer there. In that particular place, you either designed hardware or you wrote software. You did not do both. 
So it was very regimented. So to test my hardware, I had to write software anyway because the software people didn't want to write software for something that wasn't their thing. It was really interesting to watch how really smart people put in a really poor system can actually not deliver. <laughs> so Varian's still a fantastic Australian company. A couple of the instruments, like I was one of the two pioneer engineers for the Kerry Spectrum Photometer Range. We basically broke all the rules. There's all these rules for how things should be done, and they all come from the days when things were driven by DC motors and gearboxes, and, and we we're now doing computer-controlled things. So we weren't constrained to what the mechanical engineers could design anymore. And so we started asking questions, which is, well, why do we have to do it like that? They go, we've always done it like that. I said, well, can we change it? They go, what would you like to change it to? We could change it to this. Oh, and then the marketing people started going, you, you mean you could give us an instrument that nobody else could match the features on? I said, yeah, they go, go for it. And so we did a, a million to one ADC for the data acquisition. Again, really low noise. So that meant that you could measure, you know, a million to one dynamic range without having to have rear beam attenuators, all this stuff they used to have to do because things weren't sensitive enough. Yeah, I learned a lot about capacitors and dielectric constants and absorption and those sort of things. So solving really hard problems that challenges you actually grows you. That's one of the other things I really love about engineering is most engineering is actually not easy. Most of it's doing hard things, not easy things. Very interesting. You, you're never slow to challenge the status quo then? Um, world's best practice is how to be ordinary. And if we want to change the world, we've actually got to be extraordinary. In fact, one of my famous quotes in this space is from Aristotle. The purpose of the organisation is so that ordinary men and women in cooperation with each other can do the extraordinary. So the Greeks did a lot of really interesting thinking, you know, two and a half thousand years ago. I mean, I see business as the modern partnership to change the world together with the legal frameworks and the remuneration frameworks and all that sort of stuff. And it's the way businesses can partner together. It's the way the individuals can join together and harmonise their efforts. And, you know, there's no one size fits all business model either. So you can actually structure business models around the needs of the moment. I think this idea that business is about making money has run its day. I mean, businesses do need to make money. But that's not why they exist anymore because we're in a world where the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer and, you know, people are treating business as a mechanism for streamlining wealth off other people as rapidly as they can while returning as little value as they can get away with on the back channel. That's not sustainable. It's also not equitable. So um, we need to have a shift from that. So, and I'm talking about some ideas I've come to over a long period of time. I wasn't thinking that way at the start of my career because when you're getting out, you want to prove yourself, you want to show what you can do, you want to get paid enough to get established because you're at the beginning of getting a home, having a family, all that sort of stuff. So the things that you want to tackle are different. Sure. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. So you're, you look at issues and you're looking for meaningful and sustainable outcomes. Yep, that's right. So for instance, we've made a decision here that we'll only work on projects that are making the world a better place. So if the gambling industry turned up here with a fistful of dollars, we would turn them away because I don't believe they're making the world a better place. That's a view we've come to here. We sometimes get asked to do projects that are gimmicks and in general, we'll turn those away as well because we'd rather pour our efforts into something that's actually going to lead to a better outcome. Occasionally, we get caught. What a great approach. Yeah, yeah. 
Fascinating. Ray, have you had many mentors along the way? And if so, how much have they helped you? Yeah, look, business mentors in Australia, because I now wear a business hat as well as an engineer's hat, I have to say Craig Glidden at, at Varian, uh, who is a very experienced hardware engineer, really helped me to form a view of how to go about being an engineer because I'd done a lot of learning on my own up until then. So this was the first time I was really working with other people who were of a similar caliber to myself, but who had a lot more experience. So I was really hungry to learn from them what worked and what didn't work and what they had done. From Varian, I then went to Invitec, as many people in Melbourne have probably done over the years, and didn't have the restriction of had to be hardware or software. So, you know, did both there, ended up running their electronics group, their software group, and their major product development group at one point all at the same time, as well as some of the projects. I learned a lot at Invitec about professional engineering practice as it went to running projects, which is quite an important skill in engineering, but it's not one that they teach you at university. I mean, electrical engineering has got so much math in it that they have struggled to fit in all the rest of the stuff that might be useful to you. So I learned a lot about project management, but from the senior staff there, particularly Jim Fox and Peter Murphy, I learned how a business works. The execution side. Yeah, that's right. And, and how to go about things, how to make deals, what really matters. Not talking bits and bytes and millivolts with customers, but talking outcomes that they're looking for and stuff like that. So the tool of my trade for executing the design, the customers just assumed we had that. That was just a given. What they wanted to know is that they were going to be able to work with us, that, you know, that the relationship would work. Different customers had different priorities. Some were very transactional, but some actually wanted a longer-term relationship with multiple products. One of the strategies Invitec had was it bought Australian manufacturers who were established in the world market through the Vision Systems Group who weren't able to take their products to the next level, either because they didn't have the R&D capacity or they didn't have the money or they didn't have the management capability. Uh, generally, all three at once. Management capability still did challenge in Australia. We ranked very low on the world scale for that. And then what they would do is they would finance it and use the Invitec R&D engine to actually take that next level of products in. So the other thing that I saw happen at Invitec for the first time was marketing. And marketing is explaining who you are and what you offer so other people get it. But it's also looking at the market and who's offering what and what the customers are and trying to understand what they need. So if the conversation's in two directions. So for a company called Australian Biomedical Corporation that's now part of Leica, we sent a guy around the world to talk to experts and opinion leaders in all the major places that we wanted to sell stuff. And he came back with a recipe for five instruments. And so I worked as a project engineer on the first one. I was the project leader on the second one. The technology in that has a patent in it with my name on it for the scheduling systems. And that second instrument was entering a really tightly competitive market with six incumbents that have been there for 30 years who are in a price war with each other, selling into a market that was cash constrained. So you think, who can possibly enter a market like that? And how are you going to make money out of that? So the instrument that entered that market that I was the project leader for, we moved the factory three times in the first year to keep up with demand. It outsold the rest of the instruments in the market combined. 
and it was 50% more expensive than the next most expensive instrument in the market. And the reason that that worked is because the instrument actually did what people needed and people will buy what they need. So now that was a really, really interesting lesson to understand that the price is only one factor, technology is only one factor, delivering what a customer really needs in a way that they understand really matters. Sure, adding yeah. value. Yeah. yeah. So on the engineering side, I left Invitech to set up successful endeavours and the idea behind successful endeavours was that Invitech were too expensive for most Australian companies to be able to afford. By then, I'd worked out I wanted to make a difference to the Australian economy. By then, you know, I had children and I think to myself, you know, what kind of an economy are we going to leave them to play with? And so Successful Endeavours, it was an attempt to be Invitech, but to the SM end of the market. And so that was the big idea. What I didn't realise when I left Invitech was that Invitech had put all of these systems around me that just made everything work in the background. And when I set up my own business, I was setting up from scratch and I didn't realise how much I didn't have and didn't realise I needed to have to have a successful business. So all of the mentoring of the second half of my career has come from people who know how to run a business as opposed to, I was already a good enough engineer, that wasn't the problem. The problem is that nobody in Australia teaches you how to run a business, not the unis, not the business schools. The way an MBA works, my defensive MBA people here is, but in my mind, the way it works is... They're trying to teach you how to assemble a skeleton. So what they do is they take the skeleton apart, drop all the bones on the floor, pick them up one by one, tell you what they are, and then at the end of it they say, there you go, you know all about the skeleton. But it doesn't tell you how to put it together. It doesn't tell you how it functions. It doesn't tell you what to do with it. Whereas business is much more about the second part, how you put it together, what order to do things in. And if there's one area of your business that's weak, it will actually set the maximum potential for your business. So it doesn't matter, for instance, how good an engineer I am. If I don't understand branding, positioning, or pricing policy, I could still go hungry. So I owe a lot to a gentleman by the name of Dr. Mark Dassault, who ran a business mentoring program called Exponential Programs. And he was the one who really helped me get my business thinking. In fact, when we had conversations in the early days, you know, he was saying to me, you're still too much of an engineer, <laughs> basically. <laughs> Because I needed to lose a particular way of thinking. Yes. Not that I wanted to stop thinking like an engineer, but I had to pick up a different mindset for the business. And that took a journey. So sure. we started with that program in 2008. In 2009, we rebranded the business, moved it out of home because it was running as a home-based business into commercial premises. We started marketing and positioning it properly. Uh, we started getting involved. One of the things he asked me is, are you any good? I said, of course. He said, prove it. So how do you prove to a non-technical person that you're any good as an engineer? So we started looking at awards programs and stuff like that. So 2009, we were basically runners-up for two national awards in the technical area. And 2010, we won Casey Business of the Year, which is our region of Melbourne. And that's all because I, I don't know that we were the best business in Casey. We just knew how to tell our story so other people got it. And I think that's the thing that makes a big difference with that stuff. Very interesting. Yeah. How much value, Ray, do you put into postgrad studies? I think you're always learning. I think if you stop learning, you're dying from that perspective. So I learn something every day. Some of it's structured learning, some of it's unstructured learning. So the business mentoring program, we actually paid for years to keep getting taught about the business side of things. I've been on courses. Three of my guys went to Jack Gansel's embedded software development 
better, firmware, faster classes that he ran in Melbourne. It'll be the last time he's in Australia. So, you know, it's a full-on course that teaches how to go about the embedded software development process better so you get better outcomes. So, you know, we are always learning. So it's not just me. The whole business learns every single day. And if you're in electronics, the technology landscape changes every 18 months. There's a new lot of everything out from everyone. In fact, it's a bit like trying to drink from a fire hydrant sometimes. (laughs) There's so much stuff coming at you. But just staying on top of it is difficult. And you say you've got to pick and choose. Well, having that awareness, it's no surprise that your your company has had such a fantastic success story for now over a decade. Yourself, Ray, have you been involved in much of your own personal development in order to remain ahead of the game? So one of the more difficult things that I dealt with was uh, getting divorced. So I was married to someone for 10 years. We had three daughters. That relationship fell apart for a number of reasons. That really opened my eyes to my deficiencies as a human being. And so I've been on a growth tangent in the personal area as well as the professional area. So learning all about personality types and people and communication styles to get the best out of a member of my team here, I need to understand them as a person and I need to understand what motivates them. I need to understand what demotivates them. I've got one of my guys, he's designed some fantastically good products, but he's hyper risk averse. He's doing a project of the type, you know, we do sometimes stuff here that's never been done before in the history of the world. You can't Google any of the answers and you've got to be careful Googling answers anyway because people post dribble. But, uh, you know, how do I help him to perform? Because nothing kills creativity and problem-solving ability faster than fear and a sense of being at risk. So if you want a really good team, you've got to take fear off the table. And, you know, and that's, so that's one of the things we do here and, you know, If people want to have ideas, they've got to be able to shift their thinking point. So I also now teach on innovation and things like that. And, you know, we're really good good at it here. Australians are really good at creative thinking, problem-solving, innovation, and being mavericks. Going that, oh, no one's ever done this before. Yeah, let's do it. Having a go. Having a go, yeah. So we're really good at that. But we really struggle with some other really important stuff. So Australia ranks last in the world country 181 according to the OECD out of 181 countries for business-to-business collaboration, academia to industry engagement, and publicly funded research commercialization. And that's because we're really good at the the thinking bit on the creative end, and we're really poor because we're such good mavericks and we're so resourceful. We're actually quite poor at partnering with each other. I've put a lot of work into being a really good partner with my suppliers, being a really good partner with our clients, being a really good partner with other design businesses that we do projects jointly with. Collaboration, it's fascinating. and There's a massive ripple effect too, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. And if I want to change the Australian economy, a lot of other buildings have got to be busy beside mine. So I've got to work out how to give as much of this pie away as I can. And to people who've got the right mindset to be able to take that and grow it and run with it and not be afraid that they've got to hold it to themselves really tightly. You know, this idea that if you tell anyone what you're doing, they'll just take all your customers off you is not a very confidence-inspiring position. <laughs> what I tell my guys now, I want to tell people now, they say, oh, so all of your staff have got non-compete clauses and retainers and all that sort of stuff in their contracts. And I go, no. They go, but what if they leave and take a customer with them? I said, well, if they can take a customer with them, they deserve them. <laughs> It's a good way of looking and at it. they deserve each other. Yeah. <laughs> yes. 
What's one common myth about your profession, Ray, that you'd like to debunk? Well, I think there's a myth about the whole industry. The first myth is that manufacturing doesn't happen in Australia anymore. Mm -hmm. So manufacturing in Australia before whole COVID-19 thing was 900,000 direct jobs. 44% of the GDP of Melbourne is manufacturing. And that's a semi figure. And we also are in the position where manufacturing creates a lot of indirect jobs around it in other industries. So if you've got 900,000 direct jobs in manufacturing, then somewhere between 2.5 and 5 to 1 ratio to indirect jobs, uh, if we go conservative and we go with 3 to 1, then there are 2.9 million jobs in Australia that depend on manufacturing. There's only 11 million jobs in the economy. So we're talking about nearly 30% of all the jobs in Australia are dependent on manufacturing for their existence. And we have been terrible at promoting brand Australia to Australia. Brand Australia is really valued overseas. Yes. But we really struggle with it here. And it's not just the Paul Poppy syndrome, I think. I think we've really bought into the globalisation consumerism idea that you've got to get the price down, that the whole aim of everything is to get the price down. And we're pretty happy to buy junk as long as it's cheap. And we'll actually spend more money buying junk that's cheap than good stuff over the long run. So I think that's the first mental shift I'd like to see is for Australia to start to really value Australia and not just in the manufacturing area, everywhere. It's a very topical thought, isn't it, from a supply chain perspective in regards to what's going on in the world right now, isn't it? Absolutely. We've been doing onshoring and projects from pretty much the beginning of the second phase of our business, which is once we got our act together uh, on the business side of things. So every year we do one, two, three onshoring exercises where someone's decided they need to come back from Asia because while the price is fine, nothing else is, including support and those sort of things. So we have people who are getting us to design and then make a product for them and supply it to them at three times the prices they're paying for the Chinese product. And that is an absolute bargain because those products work. I, I can tell you now, an ethical salesperson can't sell a dud. So if a business has a product that's a dud, their sales team aren't going to be able to sell it. They won't be able to look at themselves in the mirror if they know but if they know the product is absolutely rock solid and they can have full confidence in it they can flog that thing to death so we, we see a lot of businesses actually completely transform their presence in the market once they actually have a product they can believe in and they're not just doing it on price they're doing it because that's what the customer needs i made the mistake myself when i started the business i tried to keep the price low so that people could afford it and people weren't buying because the price was too low because it didn't match. The value and the price didn't match. Yes. Yeah. So we actually doubled our pricing at one point. And not only did our revenue go up, but our total number of sales went up as well. Wow. So we actually tripled in revenue. Isn't that interesting? Because people are now confident to buy. So yes. you've really got to, it's, it's got to work inside their head. Otherwise, you get this problem where they look at the price and they go, oh, that's really cheap. Oh, there's got to be something wrong with that. It's more about the value. That's correct. So you've got to be able to explain the value. Uh, and I have conversations with people, you know, and they say, well, why should we choose you? And I say, well, if you don't need it to work or you <laughs> don't care what happens in the field or, you know, if you don't need any of that stuff, then you don't need us. If you actually want some of that stuff, then we really take a lot of care to make sure that you get what you need. What an interesting way to looking at it. Fascinating. What was the greatest challenge during your career? and How did you overcome it, Ray? There's probably been a couple. 
the transformation to a business mindset is one of them. So that was a major challenge. Mm-hmm. The other one, this is probably not as big a challenge, but it was another foundation point. So we had a client that we were doing work for. Uh, we were running late on the project because it had proven more difficult than we'd expected. And there was another business that was providing an app and a web service for the product that we were doing. And they were telling the client that the reason it wasn't working was all our fault. And so the client decided that he was going to take us to court to the Supreme Court of Victoria and sue us for underperformance and non-delivery and all that sort of stuff. And that was the first time I'd been facing a situation like that. So we made a decision. I mean, it started with me, but we made a decision as a team that this client doesn't get to choose our values and this client doesn't get to choose our response. So they can apply pressure, but they don't get to choose how we respond to that. So we actually dug in and we got the product to the point where it worked and we did the right thing by this person in spite of their behaviour towards us. And then eventually it came to light that, in fact, our bit worked just fine. Oh, really? And the problem was with the app and the web service. So we actually went from having threats of lawyers and lawsuits and stuff like that to actually being on quite good terms with that client by the end of that process. Wow, that's that's an interesting story. Yeah, and I think it really helped my team because there's an old adage, you can take two glasses of water, one of them's hot water, one of them's cold water, and put a tea bag in each. Nothing much will show in the cold water, but the hot water will let you see what's inside the tea bag. So life's a bit the same. Pressure situations will actually show more of what's on the inside of someone than easy sailing. And so sometimes when a business gets into a pressure situation, the staff get an opportunity to see whether we really meant it when we said this is who we are. And so I I see that as an important step in the business because all of our staff came out of that situation knowing that all of the things we said were actually real, that this wasn't just positioning. And are they still a client of yours today? Uh, No, no. They struggled on the business front. They're not a client of anyone's. Right, right. Very interesting story, though. I I like that analogy with the the T. Yeah. What do you wish you'd known when you'd started? I think a few things. (laughs) The, The first one is that technical excellence is one leg on the chair, and if that's the only leg you've got on your chair, you're in trouble. You actually need some other legs on your chair in order to be able to support you and and carry the weight. And it does depend a lot on what you're going to do. Some people remain technical all their life. So this is a career choice. I'm still technical. I'm still writing software and designing circuit boards and stuff like that. I just do more of the business stuff now because that's something I can do better than the, the other, although it's really funny watching my guys talking with clients and stuff like that. I hear my words falling out of their mouth. So I think to myself, this is working. You've mentored them well. Yeah, that's right. It also means they believe it. Yes. Because that's the other side of it. So the the second one is the technical skills really matter, but if you're going to have a career, regardless of what that career is, there are going to be some other components. People really matter. Being good enough with people makes a big difference in a technical career. It's not just about being right, but it's also about being personable. I don't know if you watch Big Bang Theory at all. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. But those characters morph quite a lot over the progression of the series and become much better with people, with time, 
because they rub off on each other. And I know some yes. of that's the script writing and their actors and all that sort of stuff. But some of the things they do in the early part of the series and, and occasionally even later on, you think to yourself, how can you treat people like that? <laughs> so that's part of the other side of this thing, the myth that nerds don't have a heart. You know, just not true. But they're just not always sure how to, how, how to express that. Yeah, so you've got to be good enough with people. You've got to be good enough with the technology. And the other thing is you've really got to have a reason for wanting to do it. So if your reason is just money, then that's not a good enough reason to want to be excellent. So you've got to have another reason for doing it. And the reality is that a lot of the world are really struggling. I'm one of the rich of the world. With that comes an opportunity and a responsibility to try and do something about it. What a great vision. You want to leave an impact. Yeah. I I mean, I want the world to be better every day because of me. I want my guys to go home and fist pump Mm-hmm. and say, look at what we did today. Look what impact that's having. We roughly start a new project every three days at the moment. So we are very busy. And this is with a team of 11 engineers, two others, and then a supply chain of partners around us. And we'll farm bits of that business out to other people who can do it. Although that's not always easy, particularly when you haven't worked out how you're going to solve the problem, you can't farm that out <laughs> to, to other people. But that means we have to roughly finish a project every three days. Or we get what I call commercial indigestion. (laughs) (laughs) So you've got, if you've got too many balls in the air at once, you become inefficient, you end up spinning. Occasionally we have to park a project so we can get some things finished. And so those conversations are sometimes not comfortable conversations, but I will be honest with clients and with suppliers about what we're doing and why we're doing it. So being good with people, having a big enough vision, having a technical capability to deliver your piece of it, those are actually enough to make a stool. If you can build a few more legs into it, then you can have something that's even more robust than that. But if you don't have enough of each of those three, you're going to struggle, I think, with a career. Absolutely. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. And again, clearly sustainability is important to you. Short-term results, not so interesting, but long-term partnerships and positive impacts is what you're driving for. Yep, that's right. We're getting a lot of business at the moment from people wanting to onshore because they're having supply chain problems. That's more challenging in electronics because we don't have a local component industry, apart from automotive diodes. Robert Bosch's factory in Clayton here in Melbourne is the largest automotive diode factory in the world. Make six diodes a second. So it's 480,000 diodes a day. It's a huge operation. And so we can do high volume, fully automated manufacturing in Australia without any problems. It's the challenging part is building up to that level because a lot of local projects are small. So our most successful clients focus on world market, not just the local market. But if you're going to onshore a project to Australia, you've still got to pull components in from overseas. So microcontrollers, resistors, capacitors, connectors, most of those are going to have to come in from overseas somewhere. And that can be a disadvantage because those parts are not sold to Australia at the same price as they're sold to Asia. The bill of materials in Australia can sometimes be more than the finished goods price in China. So that's one of those challenges. So the way you overcome that challenge is you have to deliver much more value in the product and in its reliability and in supportability. The total cost of ownership of the product is what matters. People focus too much on bill of materials and you almost have this thing where they say, Ray, we want you to design a product. We want the bill of materials to be as low as possible and we want to pay you as little as possible to do it. And that's a recipe for a very expensive product. 
because the only way I can deliver on that is to use lots of cheap materials. And you know, PCB loading, it costs you more to load a resistor than the resistor costs. And so you've got process costs that you're building in. Not doing enough engineering means that you don't have enough integration in the product or you don't take advantage of tooling. So now you've got manual labor or you've got lots of fiddly little bits and that adds to the price. Uh, if your production rework rate isn't really, really low, then you've got costs in your production process there. If you send them out into the field and they're difficult to service or support or you know look after, then there are costs in that. So the product can keep costing you after it leaves your building and someone's paid for it. And then if you have an issue in the field and you've got warranty returns and stuff like that, then that's got costs associated with it as well. So the recipe for a really, really successful product development is understand every stakeholder's need and deliver for every stakeholder. And that's a really successful product. Sure. It's been a really interesting conversation, Ray, and you've been very generous with your time. I've got two more final questions, if I may. Which streams of engineering do you think provide the best career opportunities for engineers into the future, Ray? Yeah, well, clearly biomedical is a bit of a the darling child at the moment, uh, and clearly biomedical is a very important area of engineering, and that's an area that's only going to increase. So we do some biomedical projects here, but we're not an ISO 13485 quality management system company, so there are classes of projects we can't do, or if we do do them, we have to do them inside someone else's system because we don't have those systems or structural costs in place. And there's plenty of other people in Melbourne aiming at that space. So Grey Innovation, Planet Innovation, Invitech, Hydrix, they're all geared up to be able to do those kind of projects. And so they're actually a bet. What we've realised is we can't be everything to everyone. So work out who you are you know, and have a clear presence for that sort of thing. So biomedical is definitely one. I'd love to be involved in aerospace, but that's a case of positioning. And again, Australia has really missed out on the high end of the food chain in all of those industries. So we have people who are suppliers, you know, like Moran provide the twin tail assemblies of the F-35. It's a very high value part, but their supplier part. There are other people who are system integrators for the avionics systems. They actually get more money to do that than Moran do to get a precision piece of engineering made and installed in a plane. So I think moving further up the supply chain. So I'd say the other really big opportunity is to get involved in what's called systems engineering. So actually putting the system design together from the top down rather than doing the bits and pieces. Engineers are really good at problem solving. They can do the mathematics for pretty much any business case or, or any of those simple analysis things because they've got that in spades. So they can also apply those skills to a lot of other areas. Only one in five people who study science ends up working in science. But the methodologies they learn on problem solving and the skill sets in that actually can apply to anything. So I fell into engineering because of the pub guitar thing. I'm pretty sure though, whatever I would have chosen to do, it would have had elements like this to it, just because that's how I'm white. So it's not like you've got one perfect fit. Sure. What advice would you give someone wanting to pursue a career similar to yours, Ray? Get your hands dirty as early as you can. I find it quite disappointing the number of people who graduate from university and they've never actually tried to design something or use any of those skills that they're learning. We take interns here. I see our job is to open up the students' minds to how engineering can work 
because a lot of the university programs now give them potted assignments where all the design is pretty much being done and all the thinking's pretty much being done and their job is to assemble it and get that right. And that doesn't really stretch you or grow you. Yeah. So someone will leave, a good example is one of the people we interned here a couple of years ago was here for 12 weeks. During that 12 weeks, they learned how to do electronics design. They learned how to do the hardware side of that. They focused on the hardware side of that, uh, how to drive LTM. By the time they'd left here, there was already a product in the market that had boards they'd designed in it. And that really sparked an interest in them. Yeah. There's an old Greek quote by a guy called Plutarch. The mind is not a vessel to be filled. It is kindling to be set aflame. And so that's what we aim to do here is set minds on fire. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, no wonder you're an owner and a driver of such a successful organization called Successful Endeavors. Ray Keefe, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast episode of Engineering Career Journeys. Please like, subscribe and provide feedback. Australia-wide engineering recruitment can be found at australiawide.com.au or on our LinkedIn page. We look forward to presenting more interviews with interesting engineers shortly.